Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to thank our sponsor, QVAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical tasks, developing deep personal relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Colleagues, is your organization thinking about a capital campaign, hiring a new development officer, or taking your fundraising efforts to another level? How about inviting myself and another member of Responsive's consulting team to facilitate a two-day sense-making experience for your team? Our two-day sense-making retreats are custom-designed to ensure that your entire team is making sense of what's most working in your favor and what's getting in your way. If this sounds like something you might be interested in, click the simple form in the show notes and we'll be happy to arrange an introductory call. Hi, Gloria. I am delighted to have you on today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have tried to record this conversation a couple of times. Only a only a rare few of my guests get the privilege of having to come back two or three times, and they've all and others have had this experience. But I think it's just a uh, just a consequence of working with uh, modern technology and having conversations. With, with many miles between the two of us, but I'm delighted that you've stuck with me and that we get to have this conversation today. Gloria, we're going to talk about some of your writing and um, a series that you've been working on. I'm delighted that, that we're going to be able to do that today. But before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, thank you for all of the patience across these multiple platforms. Uh, it's so nice to see you again. My name is Gloria Novovich. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Ottawa. I specialize in global governance and feminist policy, but I also work with the Canadian and a bit international cooperation sector, um, supporting pieces around thought leadership strategy and um, kind of helping folks navigate um, moving from more traditional charitable models towards social justice oriented work. Yeah. So uh, Gloria, the, uh, rather than sort of just sort of linger around, let's, let's just, let's jump right, right into this. So this article, the series that you've written um, or, or working on um, uh, is entitled rethinking philanthropy, a series of articles that will seek to inform our collective imagination and pathways of change. There's been a lot of headline. There's been a lot of, writing about the idea. I went and Google searched this uh, earlier today as I was prepping for our conversation today. There's been a lot of people who've used that notion of rethinking philanthropy. So how about we sort of just stop at that, or start at that really high level. What, what do we mean by rethinking philanthropy and, and perhaps what might be different about our rethinking than perhaps every one of these other Google searches sort of revealed? I started discussing the broader idea with this series with Leslie Wright, who is the CEO of the Agora Foundation behind the Philanthropist Journal. And the Philanthropist Journal itself was turning 50. And I was leaving uh, my position with Cooperation Canada, which is sort of the, the National Council of International Cooperation Organizations. So we were in these very existential discussions around um, where this sector is going and how to navigate um, 
the moment in time in which everyone is talking about things needing to change, but in very kind of negative backward looking terms, sort of this is what we should not be doing, or here is precisely what is not going well. And so we kind of realize that there is this, well, on one side, apparent lack of kind of um, forward thinking that tells us what we should be doing instead. uh, And that that isn't really kind of lack of collective imagination, but it's rather uh, the fact that everyone in the nonprofit sector is uh, running against the time and there isn't a lot of this kind of common space um, to have a very pluralist discussion around where we're going, what various models might be complementary to each other, uh, what are issues that we might be forgetting, but really they're kind of underlining uh, behind all of these key either organizational or more broadly sector dynamics that we wish we were not seeing as much. So then the idea around rethinking philanthropy was to create a little bit of that common narrative around um, our sector constantly evolving, the pressure on our sector to evolve. We've seen, you know, during the pandemic, uh, but also other crises, just how much more non-government community organizations and others are pushed to deliver, to provide, uh, despite rising challenges. And then on the other end, to kind of think what is it that we need to be building? What resources do we need? What type of solidarity should we be creating? Um, and so the series then was conceptualized. That's that very much open space um, for thinking on these these different pieces. And we're we're just getting started. I think one of the first things that caught my attention as I'm as I'm working through this article again, uh, your first article again, it's the idea that you take us to the late 19th and early early 20th century. And I'm curious if that, in your mind, because most of these articles, again, if I'm sort of if I'm sort of just reflecting on perhaps what a lot of these conversations are that sort of come under the title of rethinking philanthropy, I don't know how many of them go to that particular moment in time to Carnegie and others who were sort of defining the way that we were going to do this and and building structures for which would sort of accommodate this. Um, I mean, you know, the private foundation, for example, all that structure, for example, here in the United States was built late 19th, early, early 20th century in order to accommodate the, the, the intentions of someone like Carnegie that you begin with here in the article is that a, is that in your mind, Gloria, a particularly important? Or, or here, here, obviously, it is. It, it, why is that a particular? It's a why question. Why is that a particular important moment in time for us to begin this rethinking philanthropy conversation? Well, I I generally start kind of from an issue or a paradox that tends to bother me. And then I kind of go back uh, and I keep going until I kind of run into either a wall or an explanation. And so what I was thinking about when we were discussing, you know, what are NGOs doing and, and how sustainable our models are um, and more broadly, those, those initial um, months of the, the pandemic when we really saw inequality rising people being pushed to you know work in factories instead of giving giving covid sick leave just sort of looking at a lot of the social contracts that were almost on a daily basis being broken um, in terms of the implicit or explicit promises that we have in terms of government private uh, corporations communities and sort of looking at um what are those implicit promises that were made and and when things kind of um, started not going according to that pattern. And so that's where I really started from that early 19th century model because that's where that initial promise of Western philanthropy was made. It was yeah. around, we're going to have a, a capitalist system that allows for healthy competition where everyone gets to reinvent himself, where we're not, you know, being, um, we're not limiting people in terms of the progress, the innovation, et cetera. And then um, the sort of 
extreme inequality is going to be fixed because these wealthy, intelligent, successful benefactors are going to give back to the community. Um, and then you're sort of in that circular system that takes care of itself. Um, and what really struck me as interesting was that you moved from that model and, and the way philanthropy was working when you know it had those fewer ties, when investments were being made in terms of that long-term thinking, uh, in terms of looking at what are the really socially useful investments that otherwise will not be made. And so really kind of filling in the gap that the government or the third sector would otherwise not be filling. And then looking at sort of the massive transformation of the Western society in the 80s and 90s, um, when, you know, Thatcher's, as I say, and, and Ronald Reagan's had very different ideas about what the government is supposed to do. And so when all of these social programs became underfunded, shrunk, uh, when we started excluding people um, in a much more systemic and, and um, massive way in terms of that social programs, you know, from, from healthcare to childcare and so forth. Um, and then we got to models that really and assume that the nonprofit is supposed to work just like the private sector. And so a lot of those probably well-meaning ideas around effectiveness and efficiency and measuring of the success and impact and quantifying everything that worked really well, you know, if you're maybe in technology, private sector, uh, but that don't really translate to the social um connection, the social cohesion, the um, kind of that models of fixing the, the systemic injustices um, that really kind of brought us to the point where NGOs are, are put in a, in a kind of an impossible situation in which they're supposed to be nonprofit, but act as if they were for-profit organizations. And so we're in that mix of the models and the expectations and the resources just not aligned um, and it creates a particular set of unsustainable uh, contexts in which you know people are burned out um, communities that are supposed to uh, receive support are not really getting it to that extent and we keep trying to put little fixes but little band-aids but really we need to be kind of rethinking the system as a whole and trying to see what are the, the models and the strategies that are serving a sector that's very different than the government, that's very different than the private sector, and that can be and should be a good thing. It, it, when we think about, so, so I have my students um, over at the college in, in, in the nonprofit management course, I have them read Carnegie's um, Gospel of Wealth, uh, the essay, and I have them sort of wrestle with this idea that, that is not, that, that, that perhaps plays out somewhat differently today, but not a whole lot differently. The idea that if you just, if you happen to be rich and you happen to be very powerful in, in some context, by some definition, you also know how to sort of solve the world's problems. And, and that's essentially, that's an idea that's sort of embedded in Carnegie's essay that I, that, that I, I generally can get most of my students to sort of connect the dots between the idea that, um, you know, that, Hey, uh, these folks, you know, accumulate wealth. They, they, well, they, they build perhaps remarkable and perhaps very admirable companies, but, but, but they do that. And eventually they, they get to the, the place where they're tempted to sort of say that they fixed one problem and they can sort of universally fix all of them. Um, and, uh, but I and think I, what really, Sorry, just what happened in, in the yeah. mix between, you know, um, Carnegie and then you're talking about, you know, Bill Gates or something. The difference yes, yes. was, he, you know, in the beginning, you had these um, really wealthy benefactors that I am a fantastic businessman. And as a result, you know, I'm going to support uh, this musical hall. But they didn't go in and try to run 
that musical hall, or right, right. they didn't go in saying, this is precisely how this library that we are funding should be operating. Send us quarterly reports where you're measuring X, Y, and Z, and we will then decide whether or not you're doing a good job. It was that division of kind of, this is the nonprofit, you're running it, you are in communication with your communities. And there was that greater level of trust and kind of delegated responsibility. And then what we really saw with the rise of tech companies going to, you know, save the world hunger or fix polio or whatever was, we know everything that you should be doing, you know? So it was, here's how your organization should be set up. Here's how your funding structure should look like. Here's the things that your employees should be reading in order to be more productive, you know? And so it went to that micromanaging stage where, um, then organizations started, you know, kind of losing by winning because the more they took the advice of these um, really wealthy philanthropists, um, they, the more they actually got further and further distance from the communities that they were serving, from the results they were trying to achieve, from the very essence of of the third sector as as being you know more people centered oh yeah i could i could just simmer with you for, <laughs> for that, that that that's brilliant the idea that we that losing by winning because they were in very in very present day in a very present day sort of storytelling context that would be like the you know that's the charitable organization on main street that's receiving you know, extraordinary contributions from, but, but it also sort of comes with the, um, it also comes with the assumption that you've got to let this, this individual guide your thinking and sort of shape the way that you're going to respond to whatever problem it is. And and we're not suggesting that these super rich, wealthy people are idiots or anything. We're just suggesting that we're just suggesting that maybe they're, um, Actually, all we're really saying, actually, yes, Gloria, all we're really saying is, is that we on the receiving side of these contributions do not need to allow the contribution that we're receiving to so minimize, we, you know, that, that that's why I often say to my clients, you've got to come at this sort of, regardless of how you're exchanging money and how you're exchanging the charitable gift, you got to come at it from a peer-to-peer posture, because if you're in any sort of inferior if if the if the person on the receiving end am i am i right if the person on the receiving end is in any sort of inferior sort of position the likelihood of what we're talking about sort of creeps in am i right exactly and and the issue is it's exactly as you were saying you know it's not a battle of intellect and so yeah. you know this person knows better how to run a program as opposed to the other a lot of it has to do with lived experience um, and so if, you know, if I who have never lived in the U.S. and and come and, for example, which is actually not true, I spent a year there as an exchange student, fun fact. Uh, but if I come and tell you how to fix your problems, but I don't, you know, I've never you know walked in your shoes, as they say, then I'm bound to make mistakes that don't really reflect my lack of understanding how to run a project or, you know, your lack of interest in working with my solutions. It's simply that lack of alignment that is not going to result in some works. I was just talking with a colleague yesterday and and, um, we're writing on nutrition interventions in, in global health and just how much misunderstanding occurs when, and we've seen a decade of programs where, for example, women are told to bring in the kids for monthly check-in with the doctor and they're told, you know, you'll also be given these nutritional supplements, all of these things. This is how it's going to improve the health of of your baby. And then people don't show up. And then there is this kind of outrage on the nonprofit side in terms of, you know, here we are, we came, we organized things and people are not uh, working with us on it. And then you go and you find out that, you know, the reason, for example, this one person didn't show up is because she's juggling two different jobs. The roads uh, to actually reach that hospital are in a terrible condition during the rainy season. They have 
other children who are ill that they're tending to. And so there are these very rational choices that you yourself would make uh, in terms of not prioritizing, you know, a check-in at that moment, if you have other fires, so to speak, that you're trying to put out. But if you don't understand the live realities and you're an NGO that, you know, come there and they have all the answers and all of the solutions, then your solutions, no matter how amazing, are just not going to work. And so what we're talking about when we say, you know, let's reimagine how these models work, we're not trying to discredit and say that um, Gates or whomever have not been doing a good job or that their solutions haven't been um, organized in good faith or according to logic that actually is functioning. We're saying that unless you have a two-way dialogue, no matter how perfect your solutions are, they're very unlikely to actually be applied and therefore make an impact. So again, like I said, when we started, Gloria, what I most appreciated about your article, the, the first article in this series, and folks, we're going we're gonna to put a link to all of, all of what has been published thus far in the show notes, so you'll be able to access this. But what I, what I very much appreciate is you were just sort of checking the box on many of the sources that I have been going to. And I really, I, I delighted when I found Eikenberry's, you know, Angela Eikenberry's work right in the center of the conversation. And I think when I read through her work, because she's written a lot on this notion of marketized, you know, marketized mm-hmm. fundraising. And what I don't think that the average fundraiser, the average person who's perhaps listening to the podcast sort of knows and understands is that she's not really critiquing and you and I are not, and others are not, we're not sort of critiquing sort of the, um, you know, the, 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 the nonprofit organization who opens up a thrift store and literally starts selling commodities. We're actually talking about a way of thinking, an underlying way of thinking that is assumed from the marketplace. I, I just saw another book recently come out and one of our, one, somebody, you know, a good friend of mine celebrating a book that basically is yet again saying that nonprofits need to basically act like they're for-profit organizations. And I'm thinking, no, you're missing the point. We're supposed, if fine, just go be a part of the marketplace if that's your, if that's your argument. But what, what Eikenberry has been arguing is this idea, and I, I'm going to just cite the quote that you have right here in the center of it, marketized philanthropy turns the accountability upside down, making organizations responsive to funders and not to the communities that they are mandated to support. I mean, what what a lot of my listeners are going to, what Eikenberry's, what you're getting at here and what Eikenberry's argument is that you're sort of building into your your content here. Is the, is the essence of the critique that a lot of us in the fundraising community have been sort of wrestling with over the last couple of years with this notion of donor-centered fundraising. It's, it's, it's not all that, it's not, it isn't rocket science, folks. We have oriented our work so much to the donor that we've sort of forgotten, we for, you know, the, the argument is that we've forgotten a lot, of, a lot of the reasons why we exist and we ultimately can't deliver on what it is we're trying to do because we're always sort of um, sort of bending to the whims of, of that next wealthy donor that happens to come up, come along and knock on our door. Am I right? Yes. I think it, it really stems from this idea that things can be neutral. So, you know, we're a great NGO. We just, the, the fundraising tends to be separate and it's kind of like this instrumentalist way, like we'll just do this, this is our fundraising strategy because it has to be cutting edge. It has to, you know, fit the current market. And that doesn't mean that we don't care about all this other stuff. But actually, then you get lost in the promises you make to donors. You also create narratives that might be harming your your very cause. And then it's really difficult to get out of those situations because you've already made certain promises now you have to report on them now you have to measure certain things and that is simply going to impact you in ways that don't always happen overnight uh, but you just realize you know this this one time you're taking out a piece of your project that you know is valuable year two you take another year three you take another and you find yourself in year four with a project that looks nothing like the original one that maybe you constructed or envisioned with the community itself. And so 
I think partly there is this, um, in my opinion, really wrong idea that organizations can't be holding feet to the fire of their donors. I think a lot of people, you know, who are in the positions of of making these decisions are extremely intelligent um, people who like to be challenged when it's coming from a place of sincerity and honesty and even um, informed opinions. And so that I've seen quite a bit in terms of people feeling like they can't push back. And I always say, you don't have to push back, but you can explain, you can create narratives that bind us together as opposed to buy into this whole market competitive economy. Because if you end up, you know, playing the game and acting like private sector actors, then it's really difficult to make the case for a system that works against them. I think some of it is just kind of an identity issue. I think it's great uh, that people come from the private sector and use sure. all of these really good. I, I mean, I remember at the UN, we had this one person who was leading one of the largest, world's largest logistic uh, private you know, corporations. And he just took a year and then came and worked for the World Food Program and yeah. thought yeah. of a lot of really amazing, you know, not only just business models, but just solutions that could work so i always say like this is an amazing thing that you're there we do need those skills we we want to have this you know really kind of interdisciplinary um community where you learn a lot from i'm just you know now i'm i'm, I'm volunteering with this um youth-led ngo where most people are in this tech startup uh companies in in toronto and i'm learning so many things around uh how things can work, but also how you manage people, even that organizational culture and that flexibility. I think lots of solutions are there in the private sector and outreach and incorporating tech and narratives um, into the, the nonprofit work, because I think that critique of the NGOs being too closed and being really difficult to understand from the outside, I think that's at least partially fair. Uh-huh. You do want transparency. You do want more intelligent ways of outreach. Yes, I think yes. it's just, it's this idea that I, I feel like is false that you either have to be a revolutionary, an activist who's out there protesting, or you need to be fully in the system without ever challenging it. So what I really feel like is is needed is to merge these um, cutting edge forward-looking marketing strategies and then connect it with this idea that we're constantly reinventing our society and that it's our job actually and our mandate in the nonprofit industry to push back against business models or practices that are not serving us, against the government flexibility that's actually harming the way organizations are, are working right now. Because this is... This is where you kind of are are talking about what your location and your access is. And if you are an organization that is working within, you know, Canada or the U.S. or whatever, you very likely have the agency and the power to challenge some of those systems. Um, And so that should also be done through fundraising. You don't need to tell the story that your donor needs to hear for you to be successful. You can use those really good tools of storytelling, but tell a different story and and advance the mandate of your organization in ways that are not going to just, you know, blindly follow what you think the funder wants to hear, because I think a lot of self-censorship is also going on. Which is a good lead into your the next point in this first article that you wrote. Um, as I was reading through it, I was very much reminded of having read um, Darren Walker's Darren Walker is the president of the Ford Foundation, and he talks about what he calls the charity mindset. And you very similarly talk about this idea that that charity, you know, charity versus justice. Um, and, and that's the same call that Walker has made in his book that we have to sh- to sort of transit. We have to transition, not sort of, but we do have to transition from this charity mindset to this justice oriented mindset. And I have similarly found as I've been researching citizenship that there is sort of this continuum 
of of what it means to be a citizen and 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 this this group of authors that talk about citizenship um you know argue that this sort of that place at which we achieve that greatest level and that that greatest level of what the def their what their definition of citizenship is is very much aligned with justice um it's it's a justice oriented i don't think that's the actual phrase but it's a justice oriented citizen who can who can see the long term and can see the underlying systems and flaws in the system um but this charity mindset that you're that you're getting at which is an which is sort of just this ongoing marketization of philanthropy it's the idea that charity becomes this easy commodity for which we can package and 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 spin a, a nice little comfortable story around and 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 pop it in the the donor's inbox or or mailbox why is it that you you know Gloria, why is it that you think, why is it you think so many of my colleagues, so many of perhaps of the people that are perhaps listening to this, this, this conversation today struggle with this, I, this tension between sort of the charity, what we'll call the charity mindset versus the justice, more justice oriented uh, mindset or, or, or fundraising practice, if, if we're going to very much apply it to fundraising. Well, I think. You know, it, it kind of brings us back to what we were talking about before around initial idea behind philanthropy. The idea is system is working, the system is fair, and it self-corrects through philanthropy. Yeah. Um, and so that puts you in a pretty good situation in terms of our individual psychologies. You want to work on something that's fixable, right? You you want to see something that is fundamentally working and then you are going to contribute to it fix a little part of it and then it all works great that's that's the story we like uh everyone wants to work on something that they feel they can improve that they can change and so you create this charity model that works great because um you say you know we're opening a homeless shelter and we're providing uh these services you can count that, you can see what you're doing on an annual basis, you can send that to your donor, and you are all sort of under this idea that you are contributing to a better society. Um, and then you understand that really like it's an unsustainable model, and you also understand the reasons why um, homelessness is, is on the rise, why folks are struggling uh, to have access uh, to safe housing. And then you kind of have two options. One is to say something is wrong with the system. Um, and here are all of these complicated ways in which we need to be addressing it. It's going to take a very long time. It's going to take a number of organizations working together. And you're telling a very complicated story. And so you know, I'm not a, a fundraising expert, but from the part that I, you know, did dive into that is you don't want that. You want to tell a simple story, a convincing story, a one that is not going to take a wealthy person more than three minutes to think about. Right, and right. so the models are, are really not compatible with that social justice part. But I think it's important to think about, you know, and I love the reference you were making to the responsible citizenship. I think it's really important to think about that. Um, and I go back to something that I remember someone was challenging me when I was talking about something in Canada and this person got super upset and said, okay, well then why did you come here if things are not, you know, if you don't like how things are? And I said, well, well, I came here and, you know, I, I became a permanent resident and all of that because I want to help make a better society. If I didn't care, I would, you know, sit in my apartment, listen to my music, enjoy myself, and then leave whenever I'm not, you know, as comfortable. But the fact that I'm here and talking to you and we're trying to fix things, you do that when you, when you care. If you're in your own house, you care about fixing your house. You're going to invest in, you know, let's redo this foundation. Let's make better, um, I don't know, more sustainable, eco-friendly um, grid system. You're going to try to fix things in a lasting 
long-term sustainable way. And that's the responsible way. The, you know, putting tape over broken um, windows. That's right. the, you know, I'm I'm just here for a weekend. I don't really care what happens. And so it's it's not, I think we should get comfortable with the nonprofits being critical about society and about the government and about the private sector, because it's not trying to tear things down. On the contrary, it's the the very, you know, romantic, but really nice part of the nonprofit mandates around folks really trying to fix things together um, in ways that are not, you know, top down, but that are kind of like, this is all of our hopes. This is for us all to do better. And so that critical mandate of the nonprofit sector, I feel like is getting more and more forgotten. And that's where we run into these issues of now all of a sudden it's, it's really tricky if you're challenging the government or if you're challenging the donor. Gloria, isn't part of getting it right within the sector also stop trying to mimic what those other big mega sectors are trying to do? If you're constantly looking at the marketplace, trying to mimic what they're doing, or if you're constantly trying to administrate relationships like a big bureaucracy in Washington, for example, you're never going to to create a healthy shop for your employees, because you are you are fundamentally operating. You're trying to fix the, the you're trying to sort of function as an organization that's trying to fix a lot of the problems that those two big major sectors create. There's no compatibility in that. Ugh. And it's also and it's also <laughs> not true. You know what I mean? Like in the private sector, people figured out already by themselves that. If you are running a small barber shop or if you're running a, a massive um, pharmaceutical company, your business models are going to be different. The yes. way your employees are relating to each other or the way they're you know, hierarchically organized is going to be different. Um, um, you know, a retail company has fundamentally different ways of working than a factory. And so there's this great diversity also within the private sector. We recognize that we need to be functioning differently. And so even just being open to that uh, and saying, um, again, I'm going back to the startups and just how much of the things they are piloting and saying, hey, let's try to construct a solution. Let's see if it works for a while. Let's keep thinking about how we can improve it. And then whatever, you know, really resonates will integrate. Yeah. Uh, and I think we need to do that also on the, um, on the nonprofit side, not only in relations with the donors, um, but also in relations to each other. And, you know, I know a lot of people who work in, in the NGOs and they, they'll hear their bosses or their kind of board members who have MBAs who are working from private sector uh, corporations and they say, you know, no, no, this is this is the model. This is how, you know, HR should function or this is how people should be uh, reporting to each other. But you're not in that same type of an organization. So if your employees have way more responsibility and way more agency and you're expecting so much more from them, you shouldn't be surprised that they are not okay with such a, you know, top-down hierarchical model. And it shouldn't be a threatening thing for you. Actually, let's try to see, you know, what is it that the organization could benefit from by rethinking some of these, these models. So I think it's a lot of it is just getting ourselves as far away as possible from these, you know, stereotypes and these hot takes uh, on this is how Google operates it's like, no, even they have changed their own ways of working since that article came out five years ago, yet it's still in every nonprofit's, you know, retreat. <laughs> and, and it's just sort of like, seriously, again, uh, and I just think we need to stay away from these, you know, tokenistic ideas about this works, let's, let's all do this. And it's like, no, let's please not. 
Gloria, I just had that conversation with my students uh, yesterday in a class. It was about it because we're and this is all these. This is a business class. And we're talking about, uh, you know, Trader Joe's versus Hobby Lobby versus Chick-fil-A or something. And this is all within the marketplace. And you're exactly right. My, my students are being encouraged in this this particular course to compare and contrast and to make those distinctions and, and understand those values, because the, the, those are three companies you know, Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, and Trader Joe's that have fundamentally different values, do fundamentally different things, uh, attract fundamentally different people to work for them. But you're exactly right. So, Gloria, before we wrap this up, I really want to land on the way you conclude this article. We've really spent, essentially, folks, we're going to put some uh, in the show notes. We're going to put everything that Gloria um, has published, we're going to put in the show notes, but we've really sat on this first article about rethinking philanthropy, but you conclude in such a wonderful place because I think it is so much, and that is this idea of solidarity. You end with this idea of solidarity, solidarity, but I also want to combine it with this idea of abandoning the savior, the savior narratives. It doesn't work anymore. I was listening to this song from actually, I think like early 90s, it was this uh, Italian cantautore, I don't know how to translate, it's kind of like guys who like sing and have their music, so they're kind of storytellers in a way, and he, uh, and he's like very much kind of like a comedian of of that genre, and so he says, you know, there people knock on my doors, and they ask me to save the Amazon forest, they ask me to fix the, the river dam, they ask me to send uh, money to the starving children. Why do I have to solve all of the problems? Right. Uh, and and it's true in the sense of, you know, these hero narratives have kind of the opposite effect on people just because of the number of, you know, global, national, local crises that on a daily basis you are called to sort of address. At the same time, you're navigating your own myriad of, you know, challenges. And the response of a lot of people is just, you know, shut down, disassociate, give get up. out. Yes. And not just you don't believe in it. You just like your reaction is one of anxiety, right? Because you have the responsibility without the actual possibility to change things. And so you're putting people in a situation uh. that is just non-productive. Because if you give me, you know, a massive boulder and say, hey, put this up the hill, I'm just going to... <laughs> give up and say, well, that's never going to happen. Sorry. And and I'll just feel maybe guilty. I'll maybe not even, you know, really want to talk to you again, because there I was, I've, I've failed you. I've not, you know, done what you were asking of me. So you're just creating a, a relationship where people are not being allowed, you know, to join you in whatever it is that you're trying to fix or build. And instead, if you look at solidarity, and we understand, and I think, you know, the climate crisis, the pandemic, a lot of the global challenges we're facing right now are showing to us very clearly that we're all connected yeah. and that, you know, nobody can for a very long period of time be well with the rest, you know, of the city, country, planet, um, you know, continuously worsening. And so if we understand that, I am going to have a better life. My community is going to be healthier if we fix problems of access to social services, um, of um, rising inequality. And so then it becomes my, first of all, my interest. Second of all, my responsibility to join others in solving that greater system. And so if you're talking about solidarity, then it doesn't mean that I have to fix all of the issues. It means that I should be supportive and I should understand that all of these various causes are all, you know, building off of each other and necessary for one another. And then you are allowing people to contribute as much as they're able um, in ways that they understand um, without asking them to solve anything on their own. And so that is a, a much more honest and a fair discussion. If I say, you know, 
Jason, can you help me? And let's, you know, we have a group of 10 people and we're now going to clean the park. That's a very different message than me saying, hey, Jason, you can save this park. Will you do it? Like you're probably very busy and you don't even know what that entails. And you're just going to be like, no. But if I create a project and a program and I explain to you, you know, what's already there and I invite you to join us, then I'm putting you in a situation in which you're likely to help. And it's also not feeding that narrative around the park not really working out because you didn't fix it or some, you know, you now have to fix other people's mistakes, recognizing that we live in a, you know, flawed system and it's up to all of us to do something about it. Really. It's really, we often think about things as kind of like a zero sum game. And so if a certain group now is, is less of a hero, then another one is more or vice versa, but really we're, we're talking about just like a, a healthier way to relate to ourselves and the world, be it, you know, our neighborhood or the planet as a whole. And so our shared responsibility, also trust that, you know, if you're working on something, I don't need to fully understand, but I trust and support, you know, the cause that you're working on. And I know it's yeah. contributing to to better society. And so it just creates uh, more horizontal networks that not only allow to actually move the needle on some of these issues, you know, the uh, nonprofit sector has been trying to fix for a very, very long time, but it also allows us this, um, I'm building on this uh, notion that um, Patricia Hill Collins has around flexible solidarity. Uh, And that's the solidarity that's not built on, you know, well, my grandfathers were on this side. This is where I'm on. This is, you know, what I'm going to do, whether or not I'm questioning it. It's more this idea that we are in this together, as we've heard a million times. And that means we don't always have to agree to be supportive of one another. Uh, We can accept different strategies, different approaches. um, And that allows you a a lot of freedom to fail and try again, uh, to create new partnerships, to build on ways that a lot of the times in the nonprofit, we even feel too scared to ask. So it really is kind of more of an, an open invitation to say, let's see what happens when we remove this idea that I'm going out there to save the world. And when I really just try to work with people who are around me, whose values, you know, we 90% of us really share despite the growing polarization and yeah. seeing what is it, what is the way in which I can advance my agenda while making sure that, you know, all the other ones are doing as well as they can. And that puts us in a situation that's more sustainable you don't have as much sort of burnout. You don't have that anxiety over who's saving the world. Uh, and it also creates space to kind of rethink some of the, the models of funding, of fundraising, of running an organization uh, that I think, you know, if, if we were to have proposed it five years ago, people would, would think we've lost their minds. You know, we, we, we do have to learn how to sort of operate fundamentally differently. Um, yeah. I mean, it's also, do you know what I mean? Imagine if I went to just check what every NGO is doing and how the bakery is making my bread and, you know, checking the engineering protocols before, you know, I take my cart to maintenance. Like I would do nothing else, but going around and checking things from a place of complete ignorance for the most of, of these things yet, that's considered completely normal, you know, for for a donor that has never been in this industry to go on and check whether or not a project in, you know, an area that they're completely unfamiliar with is functioning. And so I think if we just take it back to that very basic understanding of let's recognize people's expertise, whether yeah. it's sociologists, whether it's um, uh, healthcare workers, like just kind of trust that people are doing that job and then surely, you know, creating checks and balances within the NGO work, making sure that that 
accountability is there. But to go back to your previous point, making sure that accountability is two ways. So I'm not just accountable to my donors. So if yeah. I manage to, you know, I send them a pretty report, I paint a pretty picture, they're happy, everyone's happy. But what about that, you know, the community that I'm engaging um, that kind of learning cycle. And we actually have a, a colleague writing an article precisely on, on that part. Uh, it's really important, but it's very often disassociated from the marketing part. You know, it's yeah. kind of separate, but really it has to be one logical story that you are telling, you know, both your donors and your partners and your communities. Otherwise, you know, how about like, where is your integrity? Yeah. Yeah. Gloria, if there's somebody who's listening to this conversation, they really don't want to hear any more from me. They want to reach out to you. How would you suggest they do that? Um, I'm on all of the social media, as they say. So LinkedIn, Twitter uh, works really well. And, you know, I, I trust you and people that surround you so more than welcome to share my direct contact information in terms of email and so forth as as you see fit thank you gloria we will continue to uh we will continue to uh, push out the uh, our articles your 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 materials as they as they're published um it has certainly been a pleasure i i certainly appreciated this conversation thank you thank you so much and thanks for making the space for these critical discussions it's it's really it's really important to kind of bring folks together who would not be in the same conversations in those actual discussions. So I think yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for, to you for, for doing that work. Thank you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.